Hello, Christ community. So glad all of you are here. Uh, greetings to those of you at our West Campus and uh, those in our Traditions venue. Really, really excited that you all are here. Um, before we jump into the message, I wanted to just say a few words about something you heard earlier on the video. Um, we have baptism coming up in two weeks, and you may be wondering, what is this baptism thing? What's the significance of baptism? Why are we talking about that? Well, baptism is something that is it's very important. It's something Jesus commanded his followers to do once they had placed their faith in him. So baptism is not a way to be saved. There is no work we can do to somehow earn God's acceptance. We are saved through faith in Christ, period. However, baptism is an important step of obedience for a believer in Jesus. Baptism is a very powerful way to publicly declare your faith in Christ. So it's, baptism symbolizes our union with Jesus in his death and then his resurrection. So so baptism is like a wedding ring. I mean, wearing a wedding ring doesn't make you married, right? Rather, a wedding ring publicly declares to people that you are married. And so baptism is a way to publicly declare that you belong to Jesus. Again, it is something he commands us to do. So if you are a believer in Jesus, maybe you recently placed your faith in Christ um, at, at a service here or at Alpha or something, you recently made that decision, or maybe you've known Christ for years, but you've never been baptized as a believer, I want to encourage you to do that in two weeks. Perhaps you were baptized as an infant, which was a reflection of your parents' desire for you. But now that you have placed your faith in Jesus, it's important for you to be baptized. So check out the information in our newsletter and pick up a baptism brochure as you leave today. All right, we are continuing our verse-by-verse -verse journey through this amazing book of Luke, which is an eyewitness-based account of Jesus' life and ministry. We're entering into a section of Luke where people from very different backgrounds and experiences encounter Jesus personally. And in each one of these encounters, we can place ourselves in the passage and encounter Jesus as well. So if you have your Bible or you have a Bible app or whatever, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. If you didn't bring those things, that's fine. We're going to put the words up on the screen as well. But in this passage, Jesus meets a very wealthy person of influence who comes up to him and asks him a sincere question. And in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't answer the question the way we would expect. In fact, he answers it in a way that makes everyone there and everyone here um, really, really uncomfortable, um, which, as we've seen throughout the book of Luke, is kind of Jesus' M.O., you know? He has a gift for making us uncomfortable in a good way. Some, someone once said that Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Um, and this passage is definitely in the second category. So, so let me read this entire passage, and then we're going to unpack it. Verse 18 of Luke 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. 
When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich um, to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is God's word. See what I mean? Uh, this is not an easy passage. This guy comes to Jesus and with a sincere question really about how to find eternal life. And Jesus basically says, sell everything. And the guy is not willing to do that. And so he walks away very sad. And Jesus doesn't chase after him. Oh, I didn't really mean it. Um, he didn't do that. He, he lets him walk away. So what are we to do with this passage? Well, there are a couple of ways that I've noticed people approach this passage that I think are actually unhelpful. Um, one way people approach this passage isn't saying, well, I'm not wealthy and I'm not a ruler, so this doesn't really apply to me. You know, this is a unique situation, doesn't really apply to me. The, re the reality is compared to the rest of the world, we are the rich man in this story. Um, if you make more than $10,000 a year, you are wealthier than 84% of the world. If you make more than $50,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the richest people on the planet. Okay, so let's just admit it right now. Most of us here are rich, okay? Not only that, we have a great deal of control over things in our lives, the kind of car we drive, the neighborhood we live in, the school we want our kids to go to, the college we want to attend, the restaurant we want to eat out at, right? How we spend our free time. In many ways, we are rulers. We are used to controlling lots of things in our lives. So all of that is to say this man is us. This man is us. We have wealth and we have authority in our lives. And so we can't just say this passage doesn't apply to us. The other unhelpful way to approach this passage, and I understand how it happens, but I want to just point this out. The, the other unhelpful way to approach this passage is to make it about salvation to make it about how a person gets to heaven. Now, granted, it initially seems to be about that. This man asks, how can I inherit eternal life? And then later the disciples say, well, who then can be saved? And he seems to be talking about salvation. But here's the, here's the problem with that. When we hear the words eternal life and saved, we immediately assume that this is talking about salvation through the cross of Christ. The problem is the cross hadn't happened yet. These people are not dealing with a full, complete picture of salvation. In fact, 
right after this encounter with this man, look at what Jesus does in verse 31. The next verse after this encounter, this is what Jesus does. He took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. Okay, so notice what Jesus is doing. Right after this rich ruler walks away, Jesus tells the disciples the plan for salvation, the suffering, the cross, the resurrection. But they didn't understand any of that. They didn't understand any of it. See, I think, it's, I think it is unhelpful and theologically dangerous to try and read this passage through our more complete lens of salvation when no one in this passage, except Jesus, understood the big picture. So let's go back to the man's initial question to Jesus. What is he really asking? He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we, when we hear this phrase, eternal life, we automatically think he's talking about heaven. But Jews in that day, they didn't really have a fully developed theology of heaven. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus spoke of eternal life as being something we can experience now. Jesus said, now this is eternal life, that you, that they know you, the only true God, he's praying, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, he says. See, eternal life is life that we can experience now. It is fullness of life that is found in knowing God personally. Okay, so what is this man asking Jesus? I don't believe he is asking Jesus for the four spiritual laws, which hadn't happened yet. No, he comes to Jesus asking, good teacher, how can I possess life? How can I experience true life? And that's the question that all of us are asking, right? Every person is asking this. That's the question that every human being is asking. How can I find meaning and purpose and fullness of life? Now, Jesus initially responds by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, in a cryptic sort of way, Jesus is laying the foundation for the answer to this man's question. Life is found in God alone. That's where, that's, that's where goodness and life are found. Well, then Jesus continues, you know the commandments, you know the commandments, and then he lists five of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not give false testimony, or murder, or steal, and you shall honor your parents. Now, many people, when you read commentaries and stuff, many people feel that Jesus here is cleverly setting up this guy, you know, by laying out this standard of behavior that he knows the man can't reach. Here are God's rules. How well have you followed? See, that's what many people think. But I think there's more going on here. And this is what kind of changed my mind about this. As I was studying this, these commandments that Jesus mentions, they are not simply arbitrary rules. They are a way to life. 
<laughs> they are good commands, God-given commands. Life is not found in having sex with someone you're not married to. Can anyone, can, can anyone here tell me that adultery brings life? It doesn't. It brings horrific pain and guilt and rejection and betrayal and lust and obsession. Life is not found in adultery. Life is also not found in bearing false witness against other people. In other words, telling lies about people. Life is not found in telling lies about other people. Life is not found in stealing things that aren't yours. Life is not found in destroying other people with weapons or with words. These things do not bring life. So these commands that Jesus mentions here are good commands. They bring life. So the man responds, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now think about this. What is underneath the surface of that answer? Of that answer, it is not pride. I do not believe that's what's happening here. This is not pride. No, it's something else entirely. It's emptiness. This man is saying, "I have done all those things, and I still feel like something's missing." That's why he's there in the first place. Something is missing in his life. Here is this guy who has wealth, he has influence, and good moral behavior, and he still feels empty. Can any of us relate? Why is it that we in America, we have the most wealth of any country in the world, the most conveniences, creature comforts, all of that, of any country in the world. And yet we also have some of the highest rates of despair and depression and suicide and addiction. Why, why is that? It's because these things are not satisfying our soul. We feel empty. Now, in Mark's version of this same story, the same episode, Mark 10, Mark says, he has this little element that this really important Mark says that at this, point in the, at this point in the conversation, Jesus looked at him, looked at this person, and loved him. There is no anger here. This is not a gotcha, trick question, you know, Jesus. That's not what's happening here. You know, Jesus is not trying to trick this guy or condemn him. Jesus looks at this man through the eyes of love. And he basically says, there is a reason why you still feel empty. There is a reason why your heart doesn't feel whole. Even though you have followed these good commands and have tried to be a person of honor, there is a reason that you're not feeling and experiencing and finding the life that you long to experience. And that reason is because there's another commandment that you're not living by. The most important commandment of all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is the most important commandment, and that is the foundation for how life is found. See, this is the foundation for how we experience fullness of life every moment of every day. It's in our hearts being filled with a love for God that is above every other love. 
See, when Jesus is in that position in our hearts, when we have no other gods before him, when he is our first love, we begin to taste of what fullness of life is like. Jesus looked into the heart of this man, this very wealthy, powerful man, and Jesus knew what the problem was. He knew why this man was not experiencing fullness of life. It's because his heart loved something more than God. He had an idol in his heart. Now, an idol, what do I mean by that word, idol? An idol is anything that in our heart we love more than God. Now, often we think of, of idols as being these deep, you know, these dark kind of evil things or whatever. No, not at all. Our family can be an idol in our lives. Our golf handicap, our, our favorite sports team, our career can be an idol. Or our desire to control everything can be an idol. Or our desire for safety and comfort can be an idol. All of those things can be idols in our hearts, things that we love more than God, things upon which we are basing our security and our value and our identity. Now, for this man, his idol was his money, his wealth. This man's identity, his life, his security was wrapped up in his wealth rather than God. He loved money more than he loved God, which is why Jesus told him what he did. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See, Jesus basically says to him and to each one of us, hey, if you want to experience life, if you want to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God in the here and now and in the life to come, if you want to experience that, you need to dethrone any idol that runs your life. You need to dethrone anything that you love more than God. You need to dethrone that thing upon which you're building your security and your significance. That thing, whatever it is, has to be dethroned. Okay, so how do we dethrone an idol in our lives? That's what's going on here and why it applies to all of us here, okay? How do we dethrone an idol in our lives? How do we dethrone something that has become more important to us than God? Well, Jesus shows us here. He shows us how to do this. In fact, he gives us a what, and then he gives us a how. Okay, so first of all, the what. What is involved in dethroning an idol in our hearts? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. See, idols don't leave their throne automatically or easily, especially because we're quite fond of our idols. We like them. We like them a lot. That's how they got there in the first place. See, it takes more than words and promises to dethrone an idol. It requires action. It requires some intentionality on our part. It requires sacrifice. So what is sacrifice? What does this word mean? Sacrifice. Here, here's a definition I heard. Sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. It's giving up something you love 
for something you love more. See, that's what Jesus is asking this man to do, to give up something he loves in order to free his heart to love God more than his money. See, Jesus says, your first love, he says to this man, your first love is your wealth. It's the foundation of your life rather than God, right? Wealth is the foundation rather than God. So he's saying to him, look, if you want to find life, sell your possessions. Let go of these things that are holding your heart. Jesus is urging radical surgery, which is what is required. Radical surgery is what is required when something has replaced God in our hearts. So sacrifice becomes this critically important pathway to dethroning our idols. What Jesus is doing here, what Jesus is showing us here is, is actually a powerful way to identify idols in our hearts. He's showing us this. Um, how do we recognize whether we love something more than him? And maybe you're wondering that too. I don't even know if I have an idol or not. How do we know if, to recognize whether we love something more than him? Well, here's how. Just place yourself in this story. And here's the question. Is there anything in your life that if Jesus asked you to give it up, you wouldn't be able to? A career? A relationship? A hobby, control, dessert, uh, sweet tea, that would be me, uh, that would be mine, a, a vehicle, a house, a savings account, some investment. Is there anything in your life that if Jesus asked you to give it up right now, you wouldn't be able to? If so, that's an idol. It's an idol. And again, these are not necessarily bad things. They're, they're not. These are the things I've mentioned. These are good things that have become God things. They're good things that have become God things. Things that when push comes to shove, we love them more than Jesus. Now, granted, sometimes our hearts get attached to things that are not good. Things like drugs or deceiving other people or pornography or other sexually immoral behavior, whatever. We, we start loving these sins more than we love God. See, idolatry is anything good or bad, anything good or bad that we have set our affection upon, that we have determined that we cannot live without this. It's something that when Jesus says, I want you to give that up, we're like, sorry, Jesus, but that ain't happening. That's an idol. See, this, this was the response of this wealthy man in this account. He, he wanted Jesus, but he wanted his stuff more. So when Jesus told him what would be required to find life, Luke tells us that this man was very, became very sad. His heart wasn't willing to give up these things that Jesus was asking him to give up. And that made him sad. There was this acknowledgement, man, I know life is found this way, but I am not willing to go there. 
So he was saying, I know I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss out on what Jesus is promising because I love this more. See, what, what Jesus is acknowledging here, and this is where it applies to all of us here, Jesus realizes that this dethroning process, it, we're talking about something in our heart that we love. It's something that's really, really important. It's first place. So Jesus realized that dethroning process often requires intentional sacrifice. It, in, it, it, it requires sacrifice. I remember a friend of mine telling me how he loved playing and coaching softball um, in the summer. He was on like two teams and coaching another. I don't know. He just loved every minute of it. But he began to realize his family was, you know, family time was not existent. He, he was out multiple nights with practices and coaching and games. It was impacting his marriage. It was impacting his family, impacting his spiritual life. And so one day he just decided it was not, it's not worth this. It is not worth this. And even though he loved playing and coaching softball, he stopped these things. During that particular season of his life, softball was on hold for the sake of his family. See, that's sacrifice. That's just an example of sacrifice. It's giving up something we love for something we love more. This dethroning process requires, it often requires action like that. It requires sacrifice. So, as Jesus begins, the Holy Spirit begins revealing to us these idols in our hearts, and, and probably some things are already coming to mind, as he's doing that, the, these things, as he's revealing these things that, that have begun to occupy first place in our hearts, things that we love more than him, what he often asks us to do is make sacrifices in order to dethrone that idol. Now, it may not be a permanent thing. He's asking you to do. It may just be for a season, but it is necessary in order to recalibrate our hearts. So if our idol is money, as in this story, the dethroning of that comes through specific steps of generosity. Choosing to let go of that that we're holding on to so tightly, choosing to give it away. That involves sacrifice. We are choosing to be generous because right now our heart doesn't want to. We don't want to be generous. So we are choosing to be generous because our heart doesn't want to. That is an indicator. When our heart doesn't want to, that's an indicator that sacrifice is needed. When our heart doesn't want to do something, Jesus loves doing and wants to do that, that's an indicator that sacrifice is needed. If our idol is Facebook or Instagram, you know, it's taking more and more of our, you know, our attention away from other things, or it's, it's beginning to impact our heart in negative ways. We walk away just feeling whatever, you know, if it's beginning, we're noticing those things, then the dethroning of that, the dethroning comes in reducing or eliminating that from our lives for a season. See, this is why fasting, this concept of fasting is so often mentioned in the Bible. Fasting is a very, it's a very intentional and powerful way to release our hearts from the stranglehold of a particular idol. It could be food. It could be Netflix. It could be a relationship. It could be an addicting game on your phone. See, fasting provides this vehicle to experience sacrifice. We are choosing to give up something we love for someone we love more, Jesus, right? 
That's what fasting is all about. Now, I know this sounds hard. And the reason it sounds hard is because it is hard. Okay, uh, it sounds hard because it is hard. I mean, look at what Jesus says next in verse 24. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus acknowledges how difficult this can be, especially as it relates to money. I mean, money goes after our hearts with an intensity and a power that few other things do in our culture. There are a few, but it's, it's, it's in a small category of things that actually go after our hearts with such an intensity. And so Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, for a rich person to experience life. Now, he's using hyperbole, something he did all the time. He's using exaggeration to make his point, that it is not easy to dethrone idols in our lives. Even the people who were there with Jesus, watching this encounter happen, they acknowledge how hard it is. Verse 26, those who heard this ask, who then can be saved? Now, again, I'm urging us to view this word saved from a pre-cross paradigm, the way they used it then, right? This word save also means to deliver. It's the word sozo. It means to deliver, to rescue, to make whole. These people are asking, if this is where life is found, what you're describing, if this is how my heart can find wholeness, who could ever do this? I mean, who could even do this? Who could make that kind of sacrifice? The people are asking. And look at Jesus' response. Verse 27, what is impossible with man, it's possible with God. I love that. In, in one sentence, Jesus adds this very powerful, this important additional component to this whole idea of sacrifice. See, if sacrifice is the what in terms of dethroning an idol, Jesus now reveals the how. It's by setting our affection on Jesus. It's by setting our affection on Jesus. See, I want us to go back to what Jesus says to this wealthy man who is looking for life. Verse 22, look at this again. You still lack one thing, Jesus says. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. That's the sacrifice part. But then look at what Jesus says next. Then come follow me. <laughs> come follow me. There's the how. See, there, there is a purpose to the sacrifice. There, there is a passion that drives this sacrifice, and that passion is Jesus himself. The only way we can choose to make these sacrifices that I was just talking about, the only way we can choose to make these sacrifices in order to dethrone these idols in our lives is by looking to Jesus. What's impossible with man is possible with God. It's by looking to Jesus, letting him fill us with a greater love for him through the presence of the Holy Spirit. See, that's the key. This is really, really important. That is the key to dethroning an idol. That's the how. It's in elevating our love for Jesus. 
It's in elevating our love for Jesus so that the idol takes a backseat to him. It's what an old Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers once referred to as the expulsive power of a greater affection. The expulsive power of a greater affection. What does that mean? Here's what it means. The way we rid our hearts of an idolatrous affection for something is by filling our hearts with a greater affection for Jesus. Where our heart is, our actions follow. So to illustrate, let's say you have a teenager who loves to sleep in until the crack of noon every uh, day in the summer, okay? They love to sleep in until noon every day of the summer. And then one day, something absolutely miraculous happens. He is up, at, he is up and out the door by 6 a.m., Every morning for several weeks, he is up and out the door by 6 a.m. What happened? Football practice started. See, it's not that he no longer loves to sleep. He does, but his love for football replaced that previous love, at least for a while. But do you see how this works? His sacrifice of sleep is fueled not by guilt, but by a greater love. And the same thing is true of us. See, the way to dethrone whatever is first place in your heart, in my heart, the way to dethrone whatever is first place in your heart is not by trying to unlove that thing. That's not going to work. <laughs> That's not how to dethrone an idol. It's not by trying to unlove, you know, that thing. Good luck with that. The way we dethrone whatever is first place in, in, in our heart is simply by loving something else more. When we love Jesus more than anything else, our actions follow. Our actions follow. This is what happened with the disciples. <laughs> Look at verse 28. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. I mean, it's almost as if this is the first time Peter realized this. Wow, you know, we've given up a lot. I mean, clearly, clearly, Peter did not view this giving up everything as a requirement. Peter didn't view this as a requirement, as this heavy burden that he was carrying. No, 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 no. Their decision to leave everything in order to follow Jesus, that decision to sacrifice so much was driven by love. It was driven by a desire for Jesus, a greater desire for Jesus. See, when Jesus was their ultimate desire, they just wanted him more than anything else, when he was their ultimate desire, of course they would leave everything to follow him. And that choice resulted in life. Jesus said in response to Peter, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. See, Jesus is saying, when this heart issue gets settled, when you choose to love me more than anything or anyone else, you will receive blessing in this life and in the life to come. You will experience what your heart truly longs to experience fullness of life, true meaning and purpose in life. That's what this passage is about. 
And it's why this passage can speak so powerfully to each one of us today, including me. I mean, just in the last 24 hours, Jesus has been speaking to me about something in my life that has become too important and has been distracting my heart from him. It's a, it's a technology-related thing. And he's asking me to give it up for a season of time so that I can focus my heart more fully on him and his word. I just re I realize in the last 24 hours, I realize that this thing is robbing me. It's not a bad thing, it, but it's robbing me of the life Jesus longs for me to experience. And he's asking me to give it up for him. See, the reality is every one of us here longs to experience greater levels of life and joy and freedom and meaning. Every one of us here. And, and for many of us, the reason we're not experiencing that is because of a heart issue. And Jesus is looking at each of us. He's looking face to face at each one of us with love in his eyes and love in his heart, just like the rich man in the story. And Jesus is asking us, do you love me more than anything else? Do you love me more than anything else? That's the question. That's the critical question that brings life depending on how we answer it. Do you love me more than anything else? Let's pray together. And here's what I want you to do right now. We're just going to quiet our heart, and we're all kind of about response here in this church. And so we, we want to give space to respond and let Jesus speak. You've heard me speak. Now, more importantly, I, we want Jesus to speak, okay, to you personally. And so here's how I want you to, I want to encourage you to do this, how we're going to do this. I just want you to put yourself in this story. So you're just closing your eyes here. You close your eyes. Put yourself in this story. Imagine that you're standing before Jesus right now. Just like this wealthy ruler. And you're, you're wanting to experience fullness of life. And Jesus is looking at you with love in his eyes and his heart for you. So that's where you are in this story. Just imagine that. And I want you to ask Jesus right now, just ask Jesus this question. In the quiet of your heart, ask him this question. Jesus, is there anything I love more than you? And then let him answer that. Now, if Jesus identified something, if something came to your mind immediately or maybe just after a few moments of processing, but you just kind of knew it, then here's, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to ask him, okay, Jesus, what do you want me to do in response? What do you want me to do in response? 
Is there a sacrifice you want me to make? Is there an action you want me to take? Something you want me to do in order to recalibrate my heart? And I just ask for his help in doing that. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would, that you would continue to speak to us about any idol, anything we love more than you. And then as you're speaking to us about the sacrifice you want us to take or the action you want us to take, Lord, that we, we would have the courage and the strength from you to do this, to dethrone these idols, not through our own effort. It's impossible with us, but it's possible with you. And so I pray for our hearts to be so in love with you that anything you ask would be absolutely. Our response would be yes. Absolutely. And so whatever you're asking us to do, maybe even in the moments where we've spent in your presence here and hearing your voice, you would give us the courage to do that because of our love for you, fixing our heart on you. Mm. So I pray, Lord, more than anything, you would increase our love for you. <laughs> so that even these sacrifices would be, at some level, they'd be hard, but they would be a joy because we love you more than these things. So thank you, thank you, Lord, for using this passage. We pray you'd continue to use it in us just to, we, we wanna be followers of you who love you more than anything, and so we pray for you to continue to stir that first love. You would be our first love. So, so we want to um, respond to this passage, not only in prayer and in a moment, we're going to be singing some songs we've chosen for this response time, but we also want to experience the Lord's Supper in these next few minutes as a, as a response, a particular response to this message. And here's what I want to encourage us to do. You've already heard the logistics in just a moment. You know, when the music starts, you can come up to any table and take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. You know the logistics. But here's, here's what I want us to think about as we're partaking and as we're preparing our hearts to partake. Think about what Jesus gave up for you. What Jesus sacrificed for you and me. He loved us more than his comfort. He loved us more than his own personal um, comfort. He gave his life. He sacrificed his life for us. What, a, what an amazing savior. 
And so, so Lord Jesus, as we partake in, in a few moments of, of, of the bread and the juice, representing your body and your blood shed for us, the sacrifice you gave, I pray that our hearts would be filled with this awareness of what you sacrificed for us. And any sacrifice we make in response to that pales in comparison to what you've done for us, the love that you demonstrated for us. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. So I pray, Lord, in these moments, you would just be stirring this love in our hearts, filling our hearts with your love. Now, let me just mention one other thing. You can keep your head bowed for a moment, but one other thing, if you have never placed your trust in Jesus, we encourage you to do that. You can just tell him that you need him, that you long for him to forgive your sin, and then just place your trust in him. Ask him to come into your life and change you. If you've never done that, I encourage you to do that before you partake of the bread and juice. So Jesus, we love you. We worship you. Set us free right now through prayer and through the Lord's Supper and through song. We just want to respond. We want to experience you. Holy Spirit, pour out the love of Jesus into our hearts. Pour that out in a greater way right now.